A few days ago, I, I pulled out my, my phone and looked at the weather app. <laughs> and I thought uh, the meteorologists, they got together and, and just thought it'd be funny, you know, to, to put something in the forecast that wasn't going to happen. So I, I shook it and hit refresh. And, <laughs> and between, I think, last Thursday and today, it's gone from 60% to, you know, just a mere 100% possibility of snow, 6 to 12 inches, they're saying. If, if, if you live above 6,000 feet, they're saying, which I, I think I'm going to move to zero then. <laughs> and then I thought, it makes sense, doesn't it, really? I mean, this year, it just about fits. <laughs> it's just going to happen. It's just what's, what's next. And so I, I did some digging and looked, and the, the earliest snowfall on record in Denver is September 3rd. It happened, uh, I think it was 1961, if I remember right. It was in the early 60s. And it was uh, about 1.2 inches, I think is what it was. Um, the average first snowfall in the metro area is October 17th. And so we are once again overachieving <laughs> in 2020. And so uh, I know, I know, but you know that's just how it, that's just how it goes. Um, hey, a few things I want to tell you about before we jump into the message, and we're going to wrap up this series uh, so that this series doesn't last longer than the actual return <laughs> that occurred back in the Old Testament. So we're going to wrap it up uh, this Sunday, and then we'll be at the park. We'll mention that, and then we'll kick off a new series the next Sunday. Last Sunday we had our annual meeting, and we welcomed two new members into our leadership team. We had to say goodbye to two as well, but Jim Brandt and Chris Mudrin are now part of our leadership team. You can welcome them with a round of applause. Yep. Chris, uh, I, I imagine Jim is online too. He's in Texas right now, but Chris is online watching. So Chris, we are glad that you're a part of the team. Um, we also approved our budget, which is good. Uh, the budget looks a lot like last year's budget, which is absolutely incredible. Your faithfulness and giving is, is just so... Uh, Wonderful! It's a testimony to your goodness, your uh, selfless generosity. It just really helps us keep doing what we're doing, and um, it, we're all one family pitching in, especially when things get hard. And so, uh, so that's that's what's up uh, in regards to that annual meeting. Uh, you're going to see some stuff come out in the e news about fall stuff, um, chances for you to get connected, and we're going to keep doing things via Zoom. We're going to have lots of opportunities for you to be connected uh, virtually. And you're going to see stuff that's going to come out regarding, you know, dinners in people's homes. There's several families in our church that would love to host you in their houses and get to know you a little bit. You're going to see some stuff come out about Bible studies. Men's studies starts very soon. In fact, they're picking up where I'm leaving off with Nehemiah. Um, you're, you're going to see chances to uh, gather and serve in a variety of ways. So let, let me just remind you that when the pandemic began, nobody saw it coming except Bill Gates, but mostly nobody <laughs> saw it coming. And, and when things began to lock down, it was too late for those of us to say, you know, I, I feel a little isolated in my life, and what I really need are some friendships and community to keep me going through this time. It was a little late to sow those seeds, wasn't it? Now, what that meant was is you got to bear some really great fruit in the relationships that you already had, and that's a good thing because you relied on some people, maybe you, you found out the depth of some friendships that you didn't know they were that deep and they, and they were. But I bet like 
most of us, there were times when you felt a little isolated, a little bit lonely, and you thought, you know, I wish. I wish my community was a little richer. I wish I had invested before this happened. I wish I had dug in a bit. You have to dig in. You have to sow seeds when nobody's even thinking about the harvest. You just have to. And so this fall, you get a chance to do that. Well, you know, the, the spring and the summer, it's all on our minds. And, we, of course, we don't know what, what the fall is going to bring. Anybody who guesses or suggests is just on a fool's errand, right? If we've learned anything, we've learned what's going to happen. I don't know. Your guess is as good as mine. But what you can do between now and the whatever is sow some seeds relationally. And, man, it's hard to do. It really is. Because you don't know what you're going to reap, and you're going to sow some on a rocky field and some, you know, on a path. But some are going to land in some fertile soil, and you're going to be able to build some relationships with people that will bear fruit at times. Well, just like Psalm 1 says, in season and out of season. It's good. And so I'm going to encourage you. You know, you may think, whew, got through that mess of 2020, but, you know, take some time. Invest in some friendships and see what good stuff can happen as a result. So when that fall stuff comes out, the first question that ought to be on your mind is, where can I connect? Where can I connect? Where can I connect? Where can I meet people? How can I connect? Just do that, okay? Uh, next week, we'll be at the park. Uh, we did this uh, not long ago, two weeks ago, but we'll be at the park. A uh, little different this time. Just note this and keep it in mind because your mind will go back to the last time we were at the park. We're, we're going to worship at 6 o'clock. It's getting darker just a little earlier every day, and so, uh, you know, I have no idea. It may snow that day. We'll see. But next Sunday, we'll be at the park, 6 o'clock. We'll have food trucks out there at 4, so, you know, skip lunch, come for early dinner and hang out. We'll have uh, some food available, some dessert will be there, all that good stuff. Um, you know, bring a sweater or a parka, whatever you need. Um, but when we were there last time, it was really, really special event to get to see people that we haven't seen in a while and to spend time together like we did and you don't want to miss it so you ought to make some time and, and just decide that you're going to engage in that way one other thing I'll mention there's a men's golf uh, scramble coming up on the 22nd and uh and so uh I, I really want you whether you play golf or not I mean I, I'm getting Parmeter out there he doesn't even play golf he, he plays left-handed, and we're going to make him play right-handed. I mean, that's how committed we are to this golf scramble. And so, uh, so we're going to get out and play. I hope you, if, even if you don't play, come out and play. And there's even an option for you to uh, have lunch. So there's info in the e-news about how to sign up for that. And if you're here today, you can connect to either Cindy or Debbie or my buddy Dave Havercate, who's putting this whole thing together, um, which means he's exempt from winning it, which is good because I've seen his swing. It's impressive. So uh, I hope that you'll be a part of it and that you'll jump into that. So as we're wrapping up this series, let me take you back through a few weeks. We're not going to preach them all again, but I want to remind you of the questions that we've asked through this series so that you can maybe pick up one and maybe reflect on it again. We started asking pertinent, important, what I believe are penetrating questions. And most of the questions that we ask through this series are questions either, either in scripture. We started with this one, the one that Jesus asked the blind man uh, standing by the road. He asked him, what, what do you want? What do you want? It's a great question. And when we look at the history of Israel and we think about their trajectory and the things that they dealt with and when they found themselves in trouble, it really originated with this question. What do you want? We want a king. You don't want a king. Yes, we do. Are you sure? I, you know, a king, you don't want a king. And they say, yes, we do. And God asks us this question all the time. 
He asks in your life. He asks with your money. He asks with your resources. He asks with your relational possibilities as you move into the fall. He says, what do you want? Do you want to be isolated? Do you want to live in community? Do you want me to walk with you? Do you want me to stay back from you? Do you want me to offer in your life the blessings that only I can bring, the good stuff that only I can bring, or do you want to go it on your own? What do you want? And I have no idea why this is important to God, but it is. It's really important to him. And it's a question that you answer every day. You answer it with your time, your energy, your mind, your heart, your emotions. It's a good question to ask. You could even start every day asking that. Well, of course, these people are in exile. And one of the questions that we asked one week was this one, how did we get here? And we talked about how the Israelites found themselves in a very awful place, being ruled by a king they didn't want and a land they didn't own and a land that they didn't want to be in. How did we get here? It's a good question. It's a look back. And I know that Paul says, if there's one thing I do, I forget what's behind. But Isaiah the prophet also says, look to the rock from which you were hewn, from which you were cut. I mean, if you want to understand something about your life, you can look at your family and your origin and your history. You can look at your DNA, your nurture, all of these things. But the question remains, how did we get here? And whenever you find yourself picking up the carnage from a mess in your life, or wondering why the choice has led you to a place that you don't want to be, it's a very important question to ask. Since they're coming back from exile and since they're making their way home and there's work to be done and we found ourselves in the middle of a pandemic and wondering what's next for us, we ask this question, what are you working on these days? What are you moving toward? It's still a great question, especially as you enter into a new fall season and you think about what is to come. Again, we don't know what's around the corner, but it's a question that you ought to ask often. What what am I working on? What am I working toward? Of course, for these Jewish men and women returning from exile, it was at first very tangible and very specific. It was an altar. It was a journey home. It was a temple to build. What are you working on these days? And closely connected that same week and the following week, we asked this question, Even more important, who are you becoming? Every day, you're becoming someone, something, more kind, more judgmental, more loving, more distant and cut off, more forgiving, more bitter. You're becoming something. Occasionally through all of this, I would find myself with an anger that I really had no idea where it came from. Have you felt that at all through this time? This happens to me. i somehow walk through my life occasionally completely unaware of what's going on boiling inside and then it comes spewing out one day I got a a spam call on my phone and I didn't answer it but there was a number missed call on my phone and I I don't know why I did this have no idea what took over but I called him back you called me why'd you call me I thought why did I do that I missed the call What pokes deep inside of me that thought, you know what, I'm going to take this out on somebody, probably somebody whose name I don't know, who will never be able to find me, and who I will never have to apologize to. Why is that? Who are you becoming? It's a good good question to ask. 
And then to help dig at that a little bit, one week we asked this question, what are you afraid of and, and how does it affect your behavior? Well, the fears that we carry with us, they tell us so much about what we think about what is to come. In fact, we could say that all of our anxieties are built in one of two places, the past, what has happened, and the future, what is to come. And this one asks the question about the future. What are you afraid of? Parents and school and the, the things that they're having to juggle these days. And then over the last three days, they've come to the conclusion that not only are we going maybe half as long as we need to go, Tuesday is going to be our very first snow day of the season. How does that build in confidence that the future is going to work out well for us? What are you afraid of? Then as we pondered who was keeping company with the Israelites, who was helping them build, we asked you the same question. Who's helping you build? Who's working with you? Who's working alongside of you? Question's key because all of us occasionally have relationships that we draw people closer to because we feel like we have like minds, like hearts. We're, we're working in the same way. If, if we're building a wall and stacking bricks, I'd like how you stack bricks. We're going to stack them together. We're going to build a wall that looks good. And when we're done, I won't look at the work you did and think, I don't know, why was I working with you? We like what we do together. And occasionally there are people in our life that we think, oh, I can't build with you anymore. We're headed in different directions. Our values have changed. What we want is different. Of course, the Israelites came across some people just like that, who appeared as if they were in it to win it, you know, there to help them build this new structure, rebuild the nation of Israel, but they weren't really in it with their heart. Their goal was to thwart and to compromise and confuse and slow down but you had to ask this question who's helping you build it's a question you ought to wrestle with as you go into the fall and you think about the community that you're in well this little chunk of Israel's history that we looked at it really tells the story of three different leaders these three different leaders were Zerubbabel, Ezra and Nehemiah and their hope that they were moving toward different times, different groups, different people. They came back in three different groups. We didn't even get to Nehemiah, but some of you are familiar with the story that he brings people back and they hope to rebuild the city walls, and they do. They actually complete that. But each of them had the hope of a restored city, that when they're in exile, they're, they're under a king that doesn't understand their God, and now God blesses them with a king that, that gives them resources and time and energy and money and sends them home and says, now it's time to rebuild. Now it's time for you to get to the place. Go home. Rebuild home. Rebuild the temple. Rebuild the altar. Allow God's worship to be restructured and to start again, and you can't read any of these stories without thinking about Abraham and his call that God says, I am calling you and I'm going to make you into a great nation. I will bless you and all the people that you bless, I will bless. And this is all prophecy fulfilled. It's incredible. In fact, when we read this history, oops, I went backwards. Let me do that. The history in Ezra and also true in Nehemiah, it moves our hearts toward hope in the promises of God. It reminds us of what God is up to, that he's up to good things. It establishes this 
foundation of hope. It, it reminds us that his kingdom will never end. And we read these stories and we think God is still doing his thing. When we think about the hope that we have and the season that we've been through, especially the last six months. And my guess is, is that for most of you, there's at least another season in your life. It could be concurrent with what's happening you know, nationally and even globally where you went through a time where you had hope that something was going to go well, that something was going to get turned around. Some of us hope for that even right now. And then it evaporates before our very eyes and we wonder what is God up to. It reminds me of the, the statement in Proverbs that says this, hope deferred makes what? The heart sick. Amen? You ever felt that way? Just sick. But a longing fulfilled is a, a tree of life. This picture, and in just a little bit we'll take communion together, that is the culmination of that picture, hope deferred. In fact, we'll take communion a little bit differently today. If you're at home, you can skip the next couple minutes of the message just to gather your elements. We'll take it in unison, all of us together in this room, and in unison with the people at home a way to express our unity as one body. And as we do so, we'll be thinking about this hope and why the writer of Proverbs calls hope deferred, something that makes us heart sick. This, this word deferred, it's a Hebrew word, and the Hebrew has a picture of, of an archer with a bow. And this bow has a string that is drawn and then held. It's just held. I mean, clearly there's an arrow attached to this, and maybe there's even game inside, or, or maybe it's a, a part of a competition, and there's a, a, you know, a target some yards away from the archer. But the picture is that this, this string is drawn, and it's just held in place. And everyone looks, and they wait, and they wonder, is he going to release? Is he going to get his game? Is he going to get his dinner? Is he going to hit the middle of the bullseye and it's just held? Well, that doesn't make any sense at all, does it? No. I mean, the only reason you draw a bow is to release it. If I say to you, hey, you know, we're friends. I'm going to come see you. Come see you this week. And I'm going to bring something really special. I, I've made it for you. I can't wait for us to spend time together. When are you coming? Well, I'm coming Tuesday. I'm going to come Tuesday. You wait and you get up Tuesday and you're like, you've been putting on your calendar, Phil's coming Tuesday. You anticipate. You don't hear from me. You text me. I don't text back. You call me. I don't call you back. Tuesday comes and goes. I show up finally Thursday morning. How do you feel about that? Well, when you smell what I brought you, you're glad to have it, but you think I was supposed to have that Tuesday. We were supposed to get together Tuesday. I mean, I'm busy today, Phil. Hope deferred. The only reason you felt the way you felt is because I said I was coming when? Tuesday. And I didn't. I didn't. Hope deferred. It makes the heart sick. It's been said, and I think it's true, that expectations are the root of disappointment. You agree? How many of you have heard this before? You've heard this. Expectations are the root of disappointment. 
And so the solution, if you want to find happiness or peace or contentment, what's the solution? If this is true, what's the solution? No expectations. That's right. How many times have you heard that that's the solution to this? Let me see your hands. Come on. You're married. Let's be honest. It happens in marriage all the time, and your spouse disappoints you, right? Disappoints you today, and the next day, and the next day, and the next week, and the next month, and you end up in a marriage counselor's office, and maybe this marriage counselor in wisdom says, well, you know, you need to know this. Expectations are the root of disappointment, and the solution is expect what? Nothing. Does that sound like a good idea? Is that the way to peace? Maybe. Is it the way to hope? No, of course not. It's true. Expectations are the root of disappointment, but remove expectations? When you read the prophets, they would say, your expectations aren't too small, aren't too big. Your expectations are wrong. They're wrong. They're in the wrong place and they're about the wrong things. Your expectations are here and they're this big? No, no, no. They should be, they should be this large. Your expectations are about, and you fill in the blank, your hopes and your dreams and your life and your career and your marriage and your finances. And no, no, you're hoping for the wrong things in the wrong ways. As C.S. Lewis would say it, it's not that we count on God for too much, we count on God for too little. When Jeremiah describes what's going to happen when the prophecies are completely fulfilled and the glory of God's city that is rebuilt, well, when the Israelites came back from exile, they thought of their God as way too small. They thought that Jeremiah surely was using hyperbole or exaggeration. He describes a city that exists in peace, that blesses all people, that is full of prosperity, that is never harmed or hindered again. He describes Jerusalem the way Jesus describes the kingdom of God every time he teaches. So what are your expectations? Where is your hope? Uh, hope deferred. It will make the heart, what? It will make the heart sick. But what happens if, not that your expectations are not only in the wrong place about the wrong things, what happens if your expectations are improperly timed? Better said, improperly placed in history or in your future? What happens then? When you read these stories that we've been going through, we talked about a lot of them. We talked a good bit about Zerubbabel and Ezra and all the things that they did. They brought to the people of God, rebuilding the city of God, rebuilding the character and the heart of the people of God. They brought all of the same expectations. And if you take time to read the, the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah, you'll see that they each ended with a terribly disappointing sort of anticlimax. It's one of the most confusing things in all of Scripture. 
In fact, we used the story of Esther to talk about being comfortable with ambiguity. I think this is true in almost every writing in Scripture, that there is this incredible hope, but also this incredible frustration contained. I mean, when you read the story, you'll see it. Zerubbabel, he comes back, he builds the altar in the temple. And when the temple was first finished, it was filled with the glory of God, God's presence. Zerubbabel gets done, and what do they have? The glory of God's presence? No, not at all. They got a building. God's presence didn't come back the way they hoped and expected, the way it did when the temple was first built. And there they are. They're going through the motions. They're doing what needs to be done but they're left feeling a little bit empty and disappointed. That's the result. Ezra comes back, and his hope is to build the people of God. And so he teaches the people of God all about the law and what it means to obey. And what's the promise from the Old Testament? If you obey, that God will bless you, and he does so. And then he realizes that so many of them have intermarried in their faith. And then Ezra does the most curious thing. He gathers all of the men who have married foreign wives that are not Jewish in their lineage and in their background. He brings those families together and he has them repent. This is good. Repentance is always good. Always. And then he separates the families, husbands and wives. He sends the wives away with their children. In fact, he breaks up Hundreds of families. That's true. God said, don't marry foreign women. But it's also true that God hates divorce and he watches as Ezra does something that God, in Scripture anyway, didn't tell him to do. In fact, what would have been created when Ezra makes this move Oh, untold poverty, unbelievable destitution for thousands upon thousands of women and children. That doesn't sound like the heart of God to me, does it to you? No, it's terribly disappointing. I know, I know, David's a a home wrecker. He did so in the Old Testament, but he doesn't get the, the crown title, Ezra does, as a priest of God. Terrible anticlimax. And then... Nehemiah, it's the most interesting. If you've known anything about leadership, you've probably read a few leadership books about Nehemiah and how he marshaled all the forces to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and did so in all kinds of opposition. It's an incredible study in leadership. It's powerful. It's good. But I've not read one leadership book that explains the end of Nehemiah. Oh, the walls are rebuilt. Nehemiah comes back to visit the city And he walks in and he sees people that are not obeying the law and they're being lazy and they're being irresponsible. And Nehemiah, at the end of his book, loses his mind. And he begins beating people up. He grabs one man who's not obeying the law and grabs him. This is a man. Nehemiah grabs him by the hair and pulls his hair out. Now, I've longed to look into the Old Testament where this is a fulfillment of any law, and it's not. But Nehemiah takes it into his own hands. Not sure how that fulfills the laws of loving God and loving people. But every one of these leaders finds themselves in a place where their hope is deferred. Because it is misplaced in time.
What was God's promise through Jeremiah, through Isaiah, through all the prophets? The kingdom will be restored. Their expectations were not wrong. They just expected it long before God said it would come to pass. And the same is true for what we're experiencing right now in our time, in this place. Here's what it says in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11. Now faith is the confidence in what? In what we hope for. What is it that you hope for? What is it that you long for? I want to want what God wants and what God will bring about is a a kingdom that is full and complete. The prophets are true. They're right. Everything they have said has come to pass. So they're not wrong about the end of all things. God will bring the kingdom in a full culmination and it will occur and a new heaven and a new earth will be established. And in that new heaven, in that new earth, justice is seen for everyone. Love is the order of the day. Redemption and reconciliation for all people and all things happens in God's timing. And so our confidence is in what we hope for, but our assurance is about what? What we do not, what we do not see. In fact, he goes on to say, the author of Hebrews, this is what the ancients were commended for. It's what Zerubbabel didn't understand. It's what Ezra didn't understand. It's what Nehemiah didn't understand. All great examples in many ways, but not perfect. There's only one perfect, and that's Jesus. These three men fell in the same trap that you and I fall into when we look at culture, and we say it should be a certain way. Are you surprised when people behave poorly and badly? Are you? Ah, you don't understand Scripture if you are. Are you surprised when it seems like all creation is groaning for something that has not yet happened? That's because we're in the middle of birth pains. And it's not been born yet. The picture that John sees in the book of Revelation is a world that is brought to perfection. You're in a world that is not yet come yet. In its fullness, in its completeness. No, we're just like Nehemiah. Zerubbabel and Jeremiah and Isaiah. That's why Jeremiah wept. Because the world, ah, it's groaning. Remember 1 Corinthians 5. And we groan with it. And so today in this place, as we prepare to take communion, this same picture Jesus gives when he talks about this final meal with his disciples. In fact, here's what he says. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Let's say the yellow together. You ready? For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. When Jesus is gathering with his disciples with this meal, he sits down with these elements right in front of himself, and they're having Passover together. If you want, you can pull your communion up and just hold it in your hand and be ready. And as you hold it, know 
that, uh, and if you're on a front row, Cindy will be sure that you get the elements, so she'll be, she'll be right by in just a moment, to, or you can reach behind you as well. There's some in every other row. And he wants to establish what is, what we would call an eschatological promise. It's a big word that means is a promise about the future. And when Jesus does this, he says, look, I, I want to tell you this. We're going to eat this meal together, but I tell you, you will not eat this again. I will not eat this again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. This is the promise of Jesus. And so the question that you ought to ask every time we have this meal together is this question. Is the fulfillment now? Has it happened yet? Has it occurred? And if your answer can confidently be as you watch our world groan as in the pains of labor, the answer is very clearly, no, it hasn't happened yet. Oh, we still, still see strife and struggle and difficulty and pain and disease. In fact, if the fullness of God's kingdom has come already, I don't want to go. Do you? No, I would, not, I would not show up at that party for any reason. I see what's in the world and I know that there is beauty and love and mercy and forgiveness and pain and injustice and struggle and disease. And Jesus says, the kingdom has not yet fully come yet. Oh, it's true. When he preached, he said the kingdom is here. It's at hand. But then he describes the fullness of the kingdom very differently. And his promise was, we're going to share this meal together. And then... I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Jesus said, the kingdom of God, Josh, you can come on up and start playing if you want. The kingdom of God is like a banquet. That's what he said. The king throws a banquet and he invites all the people, his friends and uh, his compatriots and the folks that are his equals or nearby. He, He invites all the people that he knows well and They all send in their excuses. I can't come. I'm busy. I have this to do. I have that to do. And then Jesus says, the king says to his servants, go out into the streets and compel them to come in. And Jesus uses a meal to describe the kingdom of God. And as he does so, this picture of gathering and eating fulfills every prophecy that's present, not just in the prophets, but also in Revelation, that there is a kingdom that is to come. Then Jesus says this to his disciples. And you should have, uh, you know, your top peeled back and maybe the bread in one hand and at home have the bread ready to partake. We'll do it together, so don't partake of it until it's time. He took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Not yet, almost. See, you're just so rushed just slow down Jesus says in John 6 he's describing the children of Israel and he says to them you you ate your forefathers ate manna in the desert and God provided the bread and Jesus said I am the bread of life if you eat of me you'll never be hungry You'll have everything that you need. It's the most 
simple of staples available to us. It's the most natural thing that we're drawn to, to eat and participate in. Thank you. And when we ponder this this meal that Jesus had with his disciples, and you think about the things in your life that aren't exactly the way they should be, that have yet to be fixed or healed or nurtured along, be reminded that God is still at work, that his promise wasn't that he would heal all wounds now. Even in Revelation, John says he will dry every tear. Not that there won't be tears. And so you live in a world that is now, the kingdom is here, and not yet. It's not yet come. And so we participate in this meal in many ways with the absence of Jesus. His promise was, I'll do it with you when the time comes. As we do this now, we look toward that time. This meal is your reminder that the world is broken. The world is broken. And unless you and I can face that on a daily basis with faith and confidence, knowing what we hope for, and yet being assured of what we do not see, then we cannot call ourselves disciples. We eat of this bread knowing that God is still at work. And so we eat it now, knowing that Jesus said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread now and eat it. Jesus did this after supper in the same way after supper he took the cup saying this this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you several covenants in scripture that God establishes this is the last and final covenant and a covenant promise that God gives is one where he says I will even if you won't we're very familiar with contract love and how that works. Contract arrangements. I'll pay my deal when you finish the work. I will if you will. In fact, this is how most people view marriage these days or even friendships. I'll hold up my end of the bargain once you have delivered. Covenant love is very different. Covenant love says, I will even when you don't. I will even if you won't. God's end of the deal is not contingent upon me or you being obedient or following through. So Jesus offers this fruit of the vine. The Old Testament tells us that life is in the blood, that life is given, and the blood is given, and the blood is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. We carry the righteousness of Jesus 
if our relationship was, with God was based on our behavior or our ability to be good or even, even decent, then we would be of all people most miserable. But you and I, we get the opportunity to come into a relationship with God was Romans said, while we were yet sinners. Same as today. And so what meal would be complete without good drink? And so Jesus offers this cup. When you read in Luke, he had already divided it up. They each had the ability to partake with Jesus. And so he holds up this cup and he says, This is poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. And so now together we partake of this cup, welcoming and drinking in the forgiveness and the grace, the mercy of Jesus, knowing that through his lifeblood, we are given forgiveness and mercy. Let's partake together. And then Jesus reminds them again, for I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And of course, what he means is until it comes in his fullness. So what are you to do until then? Languish in a broken world? No, no, the the words of the prophets give us direction. The teachings of Jesus tell us how we are to be until that time comes that we are to offer agape love to every person we come in contact with. That's a very practical sense of love that is expressed in very tangible, felt, and thoughtful ways, agape love. That we are to right the injustices that are in a broken world. This is what it means to bring the kingdom of God to earth. Fix the injustices that improperly give power to people who will abuse it and not be thoughtful and not create equitable love and mercy we are to use our gifts our abilities and our resources to build the kingdom of God in very practical and tangible ways caring for the widows and the orphans not creating them as Ezra misguidedly did we are to love and to give and to serve Listen close. Listen. If your hope is ill-informed, then you won't understand what kingdom is to come. This is why we read and study and learn from the prophets and what Jesus says in the book of Revelation. And so we believe that a kingdom is coming. It will come in its full culmination and that God will set everything right. We believe that. Now, if I didn't believe it, I would be a miserable man. And if my hope isn't properly placed in time, then I will resort to all kinds of methods, just like these leaders in the Old Testament did, to make things right. I will do it by force and manipulation and coercion. 
I will do all manner of things to make this world conform to what I believe what God will do in the days to come. And yet it is only God that can bring about the kingdom. And when he does, the meal you just shared in will feel like a paltry snack compared to the feast that we experience. And so, Lord, our hope is in you and you alone. Meet us in this place.